Hey guys, welcome once again to my dining room for another lecture on democratic theory as part of our week on democratic theory here in the political reform class. Uh, it is day 27 on the self-quarantine count-up. Getting there, getting towards four weeks. Uh, Alright, I'm going to just jump right in. Today's topic is uh, participation and deliberation, and you had a couple of readings uh, for today, and uh, I'm not going to go through the readings, I'm not going to cover the specific things in the readings, they overlap with what I'll talk about today, but just know that the readings themselves are, uh, you know, intended to be adjacent to the lectures and uh, in addition to them, not necessarily that you're going to read and I'm going to lecture on the stuff. Uh, if you did do the reading before you watched, then the ideas about deliberation and participation uh, as a general concept that I'm going to focus on today will be familiar to you, uh, but you'll also know that like, oh, there's stuff in there that's talked about that I'm not going to discuss at all. For example, there's a bit on particip participatory budgeting, and I'm not going to talk about participatory budgeting in, in specifics. Um, just in general, for this class, if I haven't said it already, I think I probably haven't, um, the readings are uh, intended to supplement what we're talking about, what I, what we're, we're, not, we're not talking about anything, I'm talking about stuff, but the readings are intended to supplement uh, what I'm discussing and not necessarily to, be, to have a high level of overlap. So just know that the expectation is that you're going to be getting different things out of the readings. Um, I am going to be setting up some kind of uh, way for you guys to ask questions about the readings and for me to respond to your questions that is not a Zoom meeting uh, because I'm not really, I really don't think that model works. So I'm going to experiment uh, with, a, with a different approach. Look for an announcement on D2L uh, probably right as this lecture posts or, or, or soon after it because that's my very next task for this class after I make this lecture is to uh, set up some kind of way for you to have questions and for me to address those questions and for students to interact in a voluntary way uh, that doesn't involve um, you know, a required assigned discussion forum post or some kind of scheduled uh, Zoom meeting time. I really want to maintain the greatest level of scheduling flexibility for everybody including myself. So that's what's coming up. Uh, now, it's, this is germane, this whole issue is germane to what we're talking about, which is participation and deliberation, because under this model of instruction, this remote model of instruction, uh, these two things, which are normally very important in the educational arena, are highly attenuated, if not gone. Um, and that is an unfortunate byproduct, uh, or it's not even a byproduct, it's an unfortunate direct product of not being able to do face-to-face uh, -face instruction. In a democratic system, uh, it is an unfortunate byproduct of some of the rules, procedures, and institutions. And uh, the importance of participation and deliberation, and I'll talk a little bit about why they are important to a healthy democracy, but the importance of them uh, means that when these things are attenuated under the existing system, there is going to be energy and desire to fix the system to increase both of these important things. What I'm going to focus on today is not so much proposals to fix the system, but uh, obstacles to participation and deliberation under the current system that we have at the local, state, and federal level, as well as just kind of under general common types of democracy. So that's what we're going to have today, uh, and uh, next week we're going to move right into like political reform 
movements and the more concrete side of things, actual proposals and actual uh, uh, instances, historical instances of things moving forward. So we're gonna, this is our last day in the theory realm. But the theory is important. Uh, just because I'm only doing a week on it doesn't mean that we should brush it aside in our minds. The theory is important as a sort of as a pole star, as a guide. Um, when there's a political reform that you actually like, one of the things I would hope that you would ask, and that the people who are putting their energy into trying to make that reform into reality would ask themselves is, in what way does this serve the project of building a better democratic system? Um, what are the uh, values that it is advancing? What are the problems? What are the ways in which our current system falls short of uh, what democratic theory tells us is an ideal? And does this particular reform actually move us in the proper direction? Uh, so there's a normative argument, like, okay, we have certain values that we want. There's then an analytical uh, argument, which is the current system is falling short of those uh, values being manifested. And then there's another uh, analytical argument, which is um, that this particular reform will get us in that direction. So there, there's actually a lot going on when we're thinking about well-put-together, well-thought-out uh, political reform. And then, of course, the next stage after that is the strategic uh, planning, which is, okay, given that we have these values and we have this analysis, how can we then strategically move forward and actually get the political reform enacted? And we will get to that stage uh, as well, absolutely. Why are participation and deliberation so important? Um, I hope that you have a sense from last time why electoral systems and why systems of representation are so important. If a democracy is the rule of the people, or the people ruling themselves, um, then, uh, and since they can't rule themselves directly in, in most cases, who the representatives are who are going to do this sort of ruling in their name uh, is very important, and electoral systems are how we get our people who are making the decisions. Today, I want to talk, sort of uh, look more globally at the democratic system and say, okay, participation and deliberation are really important, and in what way is our system set up to uh, incentivize these things, or in what way is it set up to create roadblocks and uh, obstacles so that we have attenuated versions of what would be a, you know, the ideal? And obviously, we're always going to fall short of the ideal. I, I hope that goes without saying. But just because you're always going to fall short of an ideal doesn't mean that ideals aren't important out there as uh, critical standards to tell whether we're moving in the right direction or whether we're moving in the wrong direction, or even just know whether the place that we're standing right now with our particular system as it is, is close or far from what the ideal would be. I think it's probably safe to say that our democratic system is um, close to the ideal in global terms, in the sense of historical, the historical scope of uh, um, political systems, but it's far from the ideal in the sense that we all know that some of the fundamental uh, um, democratic values uh, are not uh, being manifested. There's uh, our constitutional system, our political culture, the Declaration of Independence, other important uh, sort of documents and ideas that form the core of our, uh, of our political values are, have, have written a check that hasn't been cashed yet. Um, we will get into how do we cash that check. Today I want to talk more about what the check is, right? Uh, what should be included in that check? What should be included in the promise of a democratic system? Uh, I've defined already to these two, given sort of better definitions of these two terms, and I just want to go through them and then discuss further what it is that they actually uh, mean so that we can really uh, you know, have a better idea of why certain obstacles are in fact obstacles. Um, participation is democratic engagement in multiple forms. And uh, I want to emphasize the multiple forms because one of the things I think that is 
problematic about the American political culture uh, is that we have a very ballot-centric or vote-centric uh, conception of what uh, politics is, of what democracy is, of what our duty and uh, powers as a citizen are. Your vote is your voice, right? That is a true thing. Your vote is your voice, but it's actually also not a true thing in the sense that if you equate your voice with your vote in a one-to-one -one equation, that is incorrect because your voice is actually, and everybody's voice, is much more multidimensional than that. And when that phrase is generally used to uh, try to inspire people to vote, right? Uh, and to say, like, your voice is going unheard if you don't vote. That, that actually is, you know, it's good as a PR move, as a kind of a public service announcement type thing, like, you know, vote. But it actually conveys, I think, also a problematic message, which is that other forms of political engagement are not important and they're not your voice. And to people who are engaged in uh, the democratic system in other ways and who don't vote are not uh, having their voice heard. And I think that, that is, that's untrue. If you're a person who goes to protests but doesn't vote because you think it doesn't matter or you think that your choices are disgusting to you or you don't want to uh, lend your name to a system that you believe is fundamentally corrupt, whatever the reason is that you don't vote, if you go to a protest, you are having your voice be heard, and that is a form of participation. Um, it's not common for people who are engaged in more uh, kind of direct insider forms of advocacy, like lobbying uh, a state legislature or working on behalf of a candidate or donating money to not vote. Usually voting is like for people who are engaged in, in, in those kind of official capital P politics ways. They tend to vote, but if they didn't, that would not mean they weren't engaged. And in fact, um, if you worked for five hours a week for a ballot measure campaign, um, and uh, whether you voted in that election or not, you have actually participated in the democratic system in a really valuable and important way. And it would be weird for you to do that, to put five hours a week into a ballot measure and then not vote in favor of the ballot measure you were uh, working towards. Um, but let's say that you are a 16-year-old who does that and can't vote. That does not mean you have not uh, engaged in, in uh, the political system just because you don't actually have an official vote yet you still have a voice. Um, one of the reasons I emphasize this is because I, I feel always the need to push back against our very ballot-centric political culture where your voice begins and ends. And I think that's, that's damaging because what it does is I think that one, it's dispiriting because your vote is minuscule. And in certain kinds of elections, your vote is actually totally unimportant, right? In Oregon, most of us know that this is a strongly democratic state, so when I vote for the democratic candidate for president, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's only one of however many million votes anyway, uh, and certainly nationwide of 160 or 180 million votes is probably gonna be what's cast this fall. Um, so it's, it's minuscule, but it's actually even more minuscule than that because the Democratic candidate doesn't need my vote to win Oregon. Obviously they need, like if all the Democrats are like, ah, it's safe state, we don't need to vote, then the Republican would win the state. So the votes are essential in that way. But when you think of your voice as boiling down your vote, it's really easy in certain elections where like, either you're always on the winning side, you're, the, you're, you're safe, right? You're a Democrat in a Democratic-leaning state, or you're a Republican in a Republican-leaning state, uh, your state is safe. Um, when you're on the losing side, it's even more dispiriting. When you're a Republican in a, in a heavily Democratic state, but if you're a Republican in Multnomah County, Oregon, 
um, then you're really, the people that you want to vote for are never going to win or are rarely going to win. Um, and so when we tend to think of our voice as our vote, that can be very dispiriting and, can, and it can diminish uh, what it is that people think of as uh, citizenship. So participation is multiple forms. It really does need to be seen in multiple forms so that citizens can understand that there's more than one way to engage and have an impact. Democracy is not majority rules. That's a common definition for democracy uh, that is, uh, um, I think, a, a misunderstanding. Majority rules will have to be a part of a democratic system. But democracy does not begin and end with majority rules, uh, just like the, our voice does not begin and end with our vote. And those two things kind of go hand in hand. I think that when we think of democracy as majority rules, then that, that implies that our voice and our vote are kind of two equivalent things. So <clears throat> there, are, there are not only multiple avenues for uh, participating, the notion that a citizen of a democratic society is making decisions for themselves and for the, participating in the decisions that uh, rule, that allow the people to rule themselves, um, when we see that in a more multi-dimensional way, that's a healthier democracy. So one of the fundamental pieces of uh, democratic theory is how do we take this abstract concept, rule the people, or the people making rules for themselves, and uh, manifest it in a way where that's actually happening, as opposed to just happening uh, formally, and there's really the decisions that are being made come from a small elite group of people. Many criticisms of our democratic system and, and numerous democratic systems come from people who say, well, we don't really have a system where the plurality of votes, uh, the pluralism evident in our society, all the diversity, all the different interests is really taken into account. We just have elite rule. Um, to the extent that some people actually self-alienate, uh, there might even be voters, but if you vote and do nothing else, you have, in, a, in some sense, self-alienated from the broader democratic system. So participation is clearly important, and it is not just voter turnout. And in fact, we could have a healthy democratic system with mediocre voter turnout um, if uh, there are other forms of participation that actually people feel compelled to get engaged with and uh, that have an impact on how, uh, how outcomes in the political system uh, are determined. Um, I think that it would be weird to have a highly engaged citizenry and also low voter turnout. So what's going to happen is voter turnout is going to get pulled upward uh, with these, if these other forms of participation are more common. But just because we have a high voter turnout uh, doesn't necessarily mean we have a high level of participation. Imagine that there was a mandatory voting law and there was a pretty stiff penalty for not voting. We could get voter turnout close to 100%. That wouldn't necessarily create a healthy democracy. Um, my opinion is this, is that other forms of participation, when people see that they're available, that they're effective, and that they're actually relatively low cost in terms of time and energy compared to the, uh, the gain that you get, um, the more people see those avenues of participation as being available to them, that's going to pull the voter turnout rate up. I don't think you can pull those other forms of, uh, of participation up by increasing the voter turnout as an end in itself. So obviously, voter turnout is a, is a decent, though I don't think very, uh, it's not perfect and not even the most useful metric for how healthy a democracy is. It's way harder to measure participation than it is to measure voter turnout. And, uh, but I would, I would always dispute uh, using voter turnout as a proxy for 
participation. It's, it could be a symptom that we have a less than healthy, a less than vibrant, a less than vigorous democratic system. Um, and the more people are alienated from all the multiple forms of participation the democratic system uh, makes available to them, the less vibrant it is. Um, and the more likely it is to be elite dominated, and the more likely it is to be, uh, um, uh, you know, not the kind of expression, the outcomes that we get from the government are not the expression of the actual people's will that they would want to rule themselves. So I'll talk about different forms of participation, but, uh, and obstacles to them in our current system. Um, but just note that it's, participation is not voting. Deliberation is the idea of a deliberative democracy. I will say, indicate or confess, I shouldn't say, uh, I don't know if indicate or confess, I will point out that, uh, the, that deliberative democracy is a relatively new strain in democratic theory. It's not the kind of thing that you see talked about a lot until really this, the last third or so of the 20th century. Um, and then deliberation, uh, the public forum, uh, discussion, uh, this kind of process of coming to decisions that is more than just electing representatives who then vote on uh, uh, policies, which is really just a ballot-centric version in two levels, right? I vote for my representatives, my representatives vote for policies. Um, democratic theory has come to see in the last, you know, it was the last third or quarter of the 20th century, and now we're about a fifth into this next century. So it's been a few decades, but democratic theorists have begun more and more to focus on the importance of the process whereby we get outcomes. And that seeing a democratic system in terms of essentially a dual uh, process of voting. Voters, citizens vote for the representatives and the representatives vote for the outcomes. That um, that is not what it means for the people to rule themselves. It's one of the essential components, right? And it's a necessary condition for having a healthy democracy where the people are ruling themselves. It's very difficult to imagine a democratic system that would be uh, declared healthy or that would actually look like the people ruling themselves that didn't have that two-stage process, at least at any sort of scale, right? We could still have a small villager or, or, or an intentional community um, or some kind of, uh, you know, small self-contained political unit that doesn't use that dual uh, balloting method, but it's, so it's, an, it's in, at almost every level of, of political activity, it's a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition because one of the things, so here we have, we have um, vote for representatives and then the reps vote on policy and then we get policy outcomes. And both of these levels both are majority rules. This is a necessary condition for a democratic system, but it's not sufficient. When something is necessary but not sufficient, you can't do without it. But something else is needed. And the uh, discourse of deliberative democracy, the sort of, I would say, the, the new thematic that has entered democratic theory in the last 40 or 50 years, um, has been that deliberation is an extremely important component of a healthy democracy. And deliberation is, one, it's not a vote, it's discursive. Discursive means it's about words, it's about discourse. 
It's about talking. Uh, and this discourse means it's broader than just talking. Um, discourse is essentially a kind of a, a verbal interplay. So a series of back and forth op-eds in the Washington Post is discursive. Um, and uh, really, again, much like you can't really have, you can't really do without this at, at any level of scale for uh, a democratic system. You, you can't really have just like, you can't really get rid of the reps unless you have a very small society. Um, the scale problem is there. Discourse doesn't have to be face-to-face. -face. Um, that's, that's one of the dictionary definitions of discourse. But discourse in, the ter in terms of deliber deliberative democracy is a, a, a conversation conducted among citizens in whatever medium is available. So a back-and-forth series of op-eds in the Washington Post or a series of tweets that go back and forth uh, on Twitter, or, or Facebook posts, or um, blog posts, uh, that is discursive, uh, because it's a conversation. Deliberation is a, a, uh, some kind of conversation that is open-minded and aimed at making a decision. Um, it's open-minded, and this is an important part, it's not just a conversation, because a conversation could easily just be an argument. And we clearly have a lot of arguments that go on here, right? When two people are campaigning to, uh, to win voters, they're going to have an argument. When uh, representatives are uh, you know, arguing about passage of a bill and adding amendments, they're going to have an argument. Argument is potentially part of a discourse. I do not want to indicate or, or imply that discourse is free of argument. But what discourse is, is it's actually more than just argument. Um, it needs to be open-minded in the sense that people come to it and they might argue with each other and they might take a stand and bring evidence and uh, marshal that evidence with good reasons and try to convince other people. Um, but what they also need to be doing is being open-minded about the fact that, one, they might change their mind, right? Just because you're advocating for something doesn't mean that you can't change your mind. Um, you are allowed to advocate for something even with an open mind, right? Just open-mindedness doesn't mean uh, neutral to the policy outcome. You could walk in to a debate with an open mind, willing to have your mind changed, but ready to advocate for one side or the other. Um, the open-mindedness is also uh, in, uh, important in the sense that you're open-minded enough to know that you don't know everything and that you haven't thought of everything, and that your perspective, no matter how well-informed, no matter how well-researched, no matter how well-thought-through, your perspective is always limited to your perspective. And what you might not realize is that you have the perfect argument for a particular policy from your perspective, right? And uh, your perspective is uh, gendered, it's racialized, it's socioeconomic, it's family and community and region and so many other things going to your perspective. What, what can happen when you're truly open-minded is that somebody with a different perspective, uh, like, you know, somebody who has a different experience from you. I'm an I'm a, I'm a educated, some might say over-educated, white man. Um, I, I can try to imagine what it's like for an impoverished woman of color to move through the world. And I can listen to them, and I, or excuse me, I can look at them and I can figure out, uh, you know, like, well, what, what would be the obstacles they face that I don't face? 
But until I actually listen to their experience, until I actually get their direct perspective, and it doesn't have to be face-to-face, -face, right? It could be in reading a book, it could be in listening to a TED Talk, it could be in listening to a podcast, or, 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 or seeing this person on television, or seeing them at a rally, or meeting them in a meeting. All of these things are, are discursive. Until I actually see their perspective uh, in this discourse, and it may be that I see their perspective in an argument. They come in saying, you know, I have the opposite position from you, and here's what my experience tells me why this uh, position is the better one than your position, Mr. White Guy. Uh, I can't know what their perspective is going to be, and so I have to come in open-minded, not just to have my mind changed, but to have my mind expanded. And uh, those are difficult things to do. Um, they require training, they require practice, they require, in a lot of ways, overcoming some of our evolutionary hardwiring. Um, one of the reasons why argumentation is so compelling is because it actually pushes a lot of the psychological buttons that are built in to uh, us it, from our evolutionary hardwiring. I won't get deeply into evolutionary psychology in this particular class, so, I, so just kind of, I, I hate to say take my word for it, but just allow me to not elaborate and expand on that any, any farther. Discourse, excuse me, deliberation isn't, isn't natural to us. Um, it is uh, not a natural thing to want to have a conversation that might sometimes be an argument, it might sometimes be a listening session, it might sometimes uh, just be an exploration, where you are open-minded in the sense of you're willing to have your mind changed and you're willing to have your mind expanded. Um, but if we're truly going to have decision-making that represents the will of the people, Whatever that means, like that's a very abstract term. But if we're going to have something that we could even we could even halfway call the will of the people, we can't just let them vote, right? Because this is such a blunt thing, right? Especially when we're talking about voting for representatives in a two-party system. You know, I, so I voted for Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump. What does that say, right? Does that say that I agree with everything she stood for? Does it say that that every policy she campaigned on or every action that she takes? as president is something I'm going to agree with? Obviously not. The same thing is true for people who voted for Donald Trump, right? Um, it's very common for people to be disappointed in those that they, they elect because we kind of do actually believe that, like, well, I voted for you. You ought to do all the things I want. Um, but we know that a vote is a very blunt instrument, and it doesn't and shouldn't mean total agreement. Um, so, uh, and the same thing is true here. Representatives who vote, like, you know, based, especially if you vote party line, like, what does it really mean? Does it mean you actually agree with this policy? No, it doesn't. In order to really get policy outcomes that represent the will of the people, we need deliberation. And that's because uh, the way that we human beings individually come to decisions and come to policy outcomes for ourselves when we're exercising uh, our individual sovereignty instead of our popular sovereignty, right? Our individual sovereignty is ruling ourselves. The best way to rule yourself is to have a participatory, deliberative approach to your own decisions, right? And deliberation means discursive, sometimes it means talking to other people, but a lot of times it can really just mean talking to yourself and having an open-minded conversation with yourself among the different voices in your head, among your different desires, your different urges, your different, the different pieces of experience that you have. We as human beings make better decisions for ourselves when we are deliberative. Um, a society makes better decisions for itself when it's deliberative. This is the main sort of conclusion that all deliberative democratic theorists uh, come to, or I, maybe I shouldn't say conclusion. It's essentially the main premise 
And then their issue, question is, well, okay, how do we, how do we turn that into real functioning uh, uh, procedures and activities in a democratic system? And, and that's a question I'm not going to get to too much today, if at all. But the idea that we have to have this discursive argument, conversation, exploration, that's what discourse is. Um, and we have to be willing to uh, change our minds and have our minds expanded. And, you know, those things don't necessarily go hand in hand. I can have my mind expanded by somebody's perspective that I never saw before, and that might change my mind, might flip me to a different side, or it might make me realize even more, like, wow, I didn't realize how right I was, right? I thought this thing was just good, now I realize it's really, it's good for a lot of different people. So expanding your mind doesn't necessarily always change your mind, though it often does, because one of the things about having a narrow perspective is we tend not to have taken a variety of ideas into account and a variety of po uh, po possibilities and options. Uh, so these two things are really important. So what do we need besides this, right? This, this is the basic ballot-centric structure. It needs to be majority rules. In order for this to be sufficient, we have to have a high level of participation, in all forms, and we have to have a healthy discourse, or healthy, yes, healthy discourse oops, that's deliberative. Now, before I move on to what are the obstacles to this, um, I just want to point out that uh, the term deliberation is specifically used in one context that's actually, it's not the only model, but it's a really good model for what deliberation and deliberative democracy looks like, and that is the jury, right? A jury is specifically deliberating, and juries are supposed to be open-minded. One of the reasons why jurors are not supposed to have any knowledge of the case or any knowledge of the people who are involved in the case is uh, the more knowledge you have of the participants or the issues, uh, the less open-minded you're likely to be. That's just kind of natural to our human psychology. Um, so. Uh, the open-mindedness can be, you know, it's, it, you can't necessarily make jurors be open-minded, but you can take away obstacles to open-mindedness. But what jurors are doing is they're discussing the evidence that's been placed before them. It's a, very, it's a very specific, contained context, but they're discussing without having predetermined the guilt or innocence of uh, the parties, uh, and then they're coming to a decision. And in a jury's case, they're coming to a collective decision. So their job is not just to get a majority, right? Um, their job is to get total consensus, which is not necessary, right? Majority rules can still be the basic rule for a democratic system, even if we've rejected it in the criminal justice system in terms of the juries. But uh, the, you know, anyone who says, ah, consensus is impossible, in a lot of contexts it is. And at, at a certain scale, right, it's impossible. Um, but at the scale of 12 people, consensus is clearly possible because we get jury rulings all the time. And we get them through a process of sitting down and talking. Now, that exact model does not scale, right? Uh, you're not gonna get consensus with 120 people. Um, maybe, right, maybe depending if you have a lot of commonalities, you're not gonna get consensus with 120,000 people, that's absolutely sure. You can't, with 120 people, maybe you can get them all in one room and have them all have the ability to discuss uh, and, and have their uh, say, but probably not, certainly not at 120,000 people or, or, or way more. So the actual jury deliberation doesn't scale, but it provides a kind of an abstract model 
for the kind of behavior that we hope to have. Now, how does participation and deliberation play out uh, in this particular model? We want higher levels of participation. Obviously, we want people to vote, um, though as I said earlier, it's not the only metric. This is a campaign, right? And this is governance. And the multiple forms of participation that are available to differ depending on which domain we're in, right? Um, the things you can do on a campaign are different than things you can do to influence governance. <clears throat> but they are, there are multiple avenues. For campaigns, you can not just vote, you can volunteer, you can donate money, you can run for office yourself, uh, you can uh, help form coalitions, you can be an opinion leader by either you know, uh, making endorsements and spreading those endorsements to people. There are a lot of things that you can do to have an influence over the outcome of a campaign. Um, and uh, one of the things that we tend to think of campaigns is that it's a combat, right, between different people who are trying to win. And when we have a district-based, territorial, winner-take-all type system, like I talked about last time, the model of combat, the model, in fact, of like you know a sports event, it's like a football game between the two candidates, or it's a basketball game. Um, it's really easy to see that, like, okay, participation means taking a side and trying to win. And it can, and there's no reason why it shouldn't. That's not a bad form of participation, right? You are, you're like, I agree with the Democratic Party mostly. I wanna put my energy and effort into getting Democratic candidates elected. I'm gonna donate money to the party. I'm gonna go knock doors. Um, I'm gonna help organize fundraisers so the party can raise more money. It's totally fine. Those are all multiple forms of participation. The more people that do that, actually, the healthier our democratic system uh, happens to, would, would happen to be. Um, but it doesn't have to be taking sides. Uh, and there are people who are involved in uh, forms of campaign participation who aren't taking sides. Uh, voter registration drives. Anybody who goes onto a college campus and wants to register a bunch of voters. Now maybe they have a side, right? Because college students tend to be, especially if you go to colleges in certain areas, they tend to be left-leaning, they tend to be Democratic voters. So uh, you could have a side, but there are plenty of people who just want to register more people. They, they, they don't care who you vote for, they just want more people registered because voter turnout is important to them. And so participation can be uh, uh, designed, uh, can be aimed in that way. Some organizations that don't necessarily take sides in who they, what candidate they want to win, can hold public forums. They can hold debates and discussions. Um, they can they can host town meetings. Uh, this is these are forms of participation. And what these forms of participation do is they create more opportunity to generate a a, 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 a sort of richer nexus between the candidates who are ultimately going to get voted on and go to, uh, into the government to make decisions, but a greater nexus for putting candidates in connection with people who may or may not end up, may or may not end up being voters. Right? Imagine a campaign where uh, there, were, there were no rallies, no town hall meetings, no face-to-face uh, -face fundraisers, none of the face-to-face -face stuff. It's like, Oh, I guess I guess we actually can imagine that kind of thing because we're living in a very weird world right now where that's the case. That's we're actually in a very unique position at this moment in history to see what a loss to democracy 
that is, right? We want those kinds of things. Um, campaigns are going to create multiple opportunities for face-to-face uh, -face interactions, but they're going to do so with the aim of winning. And uh, that doesn't necessarily, it's not a bad thing, but that doesn't really contribute all that we would like in a campaign. Um, when an organization that doesn't have a side says, hey, we're gonna hold a, we're gonna hold a, uh, a candidate forum, a public candidate forum, will you come to this candidate forum? Neither of the campaigns might have created that forum themselves, um, but they're gonna participate in it because if, you, if the other side shows up and you don't, then, then it becomes a, a, a free campaign rally for that one side. So both sides will, will, will have an incentive to get involved. Creating a campaign candidate meet and greet, that is a form of participation that enhances the connection. It means that more citizens can see face-to-face -face the people who are running for office who are ultimately going to make the decisions about what policies affect them. Um, they can ask questions or they can at least get more information. Um, the more of that that's done, the richer the nexus between voters and their ultimate representatives there's going to be. And the more candidates are put in connection with the actual human beings that they're going to be making decisions uh, um, about or decisions that are going to affect their lives, the more it humanizes them. Right? One of the problems that people often have with politicians is they seem distant and disconnected. Um, and honestly, that problem is mostly at the federal level, where it's kind of hard not to have that distance and that disconnection because you're representing so many people, and uh, it, uh, you're, you're in D.C., and if you're representing a district back in Oregon, how often can you come back and forth to actually see those people? Um, but the fewer times you actually are, are uh, forced to be in front of those people, the more disconnected you can be. Um, I know from my own personal experience that the more diversity of students I interact with, the more stories that I hear, the, um, the more, uh, I, you know, I used to hate to hear stories of, of travail and, and dead grandmothers and getting evicted from your apartment and getting arrested and being in the hospital. I used to hate that because I just really didn't want, I wanted to keep my emotional distance. I was forced to be connected to people physically, but I just didn't want to be connected to them emotionally. Uh, ultimately, all that rich connection that a professor has with people and with different people come through and at a place like PSU, which is one of the more, uh, it's not demographically very diverse, I shouldn't say, it's not racially very diverse, but it's demographically quite diverse in terms of background religion. Um, the more people I come into contact with, the more that humanizes other people for me. The more I see other people's struggles, when I make decisions, I take into account a broader range of those. We certainly want that from our elected officials. We want them to feel the humanity of the people whose lives they are impacting by their decisions. So that when they go to make those decisions, they do everything they can to make those decisions be really good. Um, the closer you are to the joys and sorrows of the people that you are uh, giving policy to, the more likely you are to push yourself to make that policy the best policy you possibly can. So people who m make campaigns happen, both as combatants on both sides, as well as those who enhance opportunities for uh, the connection between voters and citizens and the people who are seeking to be the representatives, the healthier our democracy is going to be. Honestly, if deliberation is one of our goals, 
uh, and deliberation will be really important here. But if deliberation is one of our is one of our goals, is one of our critical standards, um, the greater the nexus between the representatives and the people they're making decisions uh, for, the more likely those people are to be deliberative, right? As I said earlier, deliberation needs to be trained, uh, inculcated, it needs to be practiced. Um, when you are more in connection with more human beings, you're much more likely to uh, develop those skills and develop the desire to use those skills than if basically, if you, uh, like, you're campaigning is confined to holding huge rallies where you speak to people in giant groups and they're basically just ants to you and they're, they are just people to, to get to cheer and yell and clap and to say, lock her up, build the wall, right? The more you do that and the less you actually have to go walk around the Iowa State Fair eating a corn dog and actually shaking people's hands, the more disconnected you're gonna be from people. It's impossible not to be disconnected when you are, in fact, in the direct presence of more people. So, in terms of campaigning, there are multiple avenues for engagement, and they are all really important. Now, if people don't vote, all those other forms of engagement are going to kind of be for naught. So, voting is definitely an important one. I, I sometimes think that, that when I say your vote and your voice are not equivalent, that it's, it can sound like I'm downplaying the importance of voting. What I'm downplaying is that voting is the most important piece, or the only super important piece. It's one, and it's really, it's, it's an act that we engage in, you know, twice a year if we're really active voters, uh, once every two years if we're kind of the more average voter, once every four years if, you know, the presidential election is the only thing that gets you to vote. Voting is really, it's a very blunt instrument, it's very sporadic, and if voting were the main way in which citizens in a democracy are expressing their preferences about how the, the, the people should rule themselves, then that is not a very vibrant uh, democracy. You can have a 99% voter turnout rate and yet not have a vibrant democracy if basically all people do uh, or all the vast majority of the population does is vote and then go home and then pay attention to campaigns and however many weeks beforehand uh, they have to. So participation is really important here. Participation is also uh, important here and there are different opportunities to impact the world of governance um, the primary one is lobbying, and uh, lobbying is uh, you know, a, a form of advocacy that's equivalent to working on a campaign, where what you're doing is here, you're, you're putting your time, energy, and money into trying to get people to vote for somebody. Here, you're putting your time, energy, and money into trying to get representatives to vote for a policy. So it's the same, it's really the same activity, it's just that it's a different target. Voting for candidates, voting for policies. Um, so advocacy is really important, and competitive advocacy. One of the things that we definitely want to have in a healthy democracy is lots of advocacy and competitive advocacy so that all of the different voices are heard. Now, this is where participation is really super important because if some groups of people, if some perspectives and some interests are way overrepresented in advocacy efforts, then we're not going to get outcomes that are, in fact, uh, um, uh, a representation of what the people would want to rule themselves. This is, this is a common, very, I mean, very common criticism of our system and of many democratic systems, that people with money, people uh, who are elites, people who have connections, people who, who, who grew up in certain kinds of uh, uh, families, that they have a disproportionate 
influence over policy outcomes. And so we don't really have a healthy democracy. We have actually a highly attenuated democracy. The system of governance, though, makes uh, available f multiple forms of, uh, of participation that can push in that advocacy uh, direction. And definitely, if you have connections, if you have money, if you represent a, an industry that's important to your state or your region or your district or your, or your nation, you're going to have a disproportionately strong voice. But uh, part of what is necessary is to have people who are willing to participate anyway, just to push back. Because uh, even if the you know even if big pharma wins the policy outcome all the time, if people who are opposed to what big pharma wants don't even try to speak at all then policy outcomes are not just black and white, right? Um, they, they, they definitely come shaded. So, like, uh, you know, a win for the pharmacy industry could be a total win, or it could be a partial win, or it could be a tiny win, right? And one of the things that is the case is that if, if you think, like, oh, I'm way outgunned, my, uh, my interest, my idea, my group of citizens, we don't, like, we don't count, we don't have enough money, uh, and uh, we're just not going to win, uh, that's actually leaving cards on the table in the sense that you might not win, but what you could do is you could have an impact on the ultimate policy that does get passed to make it, let's say, less terrible, right? Uh, in politics, you want to win, right? But victories come in many forms, and one type of victory, it's not very satisfying, uh, but to say that, you know, uh, you know, I defeated that bill, that's awesome, right? To be able to say, I made that bill less horrible, that's, that's not very compelling, especially to younger people who, who, are, who are much more idealistic, but it's not nothing. And um, who's to say you should win, right? Most of us think, well, damn it, that big money won. Who's to say that the well-funded side doesn't represent the uh, will of the people, doesn't represent the common interest? Um, money isn't necessarily automatically bad, right? I mean, and in fact, big money organizations are often represent lots and lots of people, right? Unions have a lot of money to spend uh, on lobbying. Doctors' organizations and nurses' organizations have lots of money to spend on lobbying. It's because there's lots and lots of people. The teachers' union, there are teachers everywhere, right? Teachers are, are, are not wealthy people, but teachers' unions can spend a lot of money because collectively people can leverage uh, uh, that size into more financial resources. If you're a smaller group that doesn't have that main, that great of numbers and you can't generate that kind of financial leverage, there are other ways that you can leverage. Advocacy goes beyond just lobbying. It actually goes into protesting, right? Uh, it goes into uh, um, raising public awareness, right? Like if you, if you go around handing out flyers to people, showing them that the government is failing in some particular way, um, and you raise awareness, when people go to vote, they're going to pay attention to your issue more than if you didn't do that. And when they go to speak to representatives or say, hey, I'm gonna, are you on the right side of this? Uh, um, and the other person says, no, I'm not on that side of that policy. Like, well, but I've been made aware of the fact that climate change is a real thing and you need to take some action right now. It's like, oh, no, it, it'll hurt the economy. It's like, no, but I've, I've, been, I've been made aware of, of the fact that like, maybe the economy has to get hurt. So advocacy for just raising public awareness that, will ha that actually has an impact on both of these uh, areas. Um, when legislators and executives are hearing from a lot of citizens that they're worried about something, 
they're, even if they didn't want to take action on that, because they do have to eventually come back to these people as voters, uh, then they're going to pay attention. They might actually push a policy that they didn't campaign on or that they don't really, uh, they themselves personally don't want. But public pressure can push you in that particular direction. Um, so lobbying, raising money uh, um, for, can for candidates, which actually impacts both of these things, but raising public awareness. And again, there are people who, much like where you don't, you can take a side in campaigns, but you can also not take a side and still participate and increase uh, the richness of uh, the campaign environment by having public forums. You can also not have a side, but want to raise public awareness. Uh, you probably have a side, right? If you're gonna raise, if you if you want to raise public awareness about climate change and about how soon it is and, and how drastic it could be and how it could affect all of our lives. Um, if you want to raise awareness about, you know, pandemic uh, awareness and pandemic preparedness, which, you know, now that's done. But if you wanted to do that, say, back last year, um, you probably have a policy in mind. Um, but you don't, you're not necessarily pushing for a specific bill or a specific policy. Uh, you could just be like, you know, climate change is real and far too many people are being cool, chill and relaxed about it. Even people who believe in it are, are being too chill and relaxed about it. We need to scare some people. We need to make people realize that we need to light a fire under them to, to get them to, uh, to uh, take more direct action. We need solutions in the next 10 years, in the next two years, not, oh yeah, I, we know climate change is coming, it's going to flood the coast, but I don't know, it's, it's not really affecting me right now. And then somebody gives you a pamphlet and you read it and you go, oh holy shit, there's already places that are being flooded out. There's already island nations that are essentially being destroyed. Uh, that is a form of participation that is actually also part of deliberation because one of the things that deliberation requires in order to have this discourse at the right level and in order to make sure people are open-minded in both senses of uh, willing to change their mind and having their mind expanded is we need more information, right? A big form of participation in a democratic society is uh, spreading information, disseminating information. Um, it doesn't have to be factual information, excuse me, it doesn't have to be objective information. It could just be information about, about people's subjective experiences, right? This is one of the things about the Me Too movement, right? That was uh, all about people's subjective experiences, and it was, but it was really useful to know, like, oh my god, this is happening a lot. That raised a lot of awareness. Everybody knew that there was sexual harassment and sexual abuse in the workplace, but until the Me Too movement, we didn't know how extensive it really was. Um, so it wasn't like you need, you don't necessarily need statistics. Like the climate change argument, you might want, like, here's what the scientists say about the raising of the temperature. It's nice to have objective facts, but uh, it's also really, really useful to have people's perspectives, their subjective experiences uh, with the problem. That raises awareness uh, as well. Uh, and it creates, it contributes to deliberation. Like, oh my God. Okay, I'm a I'm a I'm I'm in I'm a state legislator, and I know that women get uh, sexually abused. But how big of a problem is it compared to the problems that we have on our table? It's way down there on my agenda. So far down there on my agenda that it's, it's the it's in the never going to get to it category. Um, now you look at it and go, oh wow, I think we need to slide that issue closer to the top because now I I see people's perspective that I never saw before. I'm I'm not a woman in the workplace, and so I didn't realize how common. Women are not only harassed and actually outright physically abused, but how much they walk around worried about it, guarding against it, uh, having to think about it. Like, I don't walk around the office worrying about getting my ass touched. And if women do, like, okay, this, this, could, this could really make, this, this really is something that we need to move on much more, 
much sooner. So deliberation is, these two things are actually obviously, obviously tied together. The more participation we have, the better our discourse is going to be. So all of that said, what are the obstacles in our system of government to uh, engaging in the political system in this way, to, to, to participating in these multiple ways? And what are the obstacles uh, that prevent us from uh, having a greater form of deliberation? Now, I'm, I'm just going to note a few because I, there, we, this, this could be, I mean, as I've said before, democratic theory is an entire subject and we're spending a week on it and there's an entire 10-week class. So I'm just going to kind of skim across and really kind of just give you uh, a sampler uh, of, uh, of uh, the ways in which our system attenuates and disincentivizes participation and deliberation. Um, let's look at the governance level. Uh, are members of Congress likely to deliberate rather than basically just argue and then vote? Uh, I think that most people would say, hell no, they're not, right? And I think that that is, that that is correct. And now, why is that? Um, and has that changed? And if it has changed, if it's gotten worse, then what are the factors that led to the uh, degeneration of deliberation in uh, the halls of Congress? And are there political reforms available for making that better? Um, one of the interesting things about the U.S. Congress is that it is a self-regulating body. The rules of procedure in each House of Congress are decided by the members of uh, Congress itself. So the House decides, sets its own rules of procedure, the Senate sets its own rules of procedure. One of the things that's happened over the last really 40 years in Congress is that the center of gravity for legislating has moved from committees to party leadership, to, to, to the leadership within the House. It's moved away from committee chairs who are the, um, from the majority party. So if the Democratic Party controls the House of Representatives, then all of the committees in the House have Democratic chairs, um, have moved from the committee chairs to the leadership of the party that's in the majority. So the House, the Speaker of the House, the Democratic leader, and the Democratic whip. Um, I won't get in in this class to why that's happened. Uh, I cover that in my Congress class, uh, but uh, just suffice it to say that that has been happening over the last 40 years, and that is one of the ways in which deliberation has declined in Congress. Because where are you more likely to have a conversation, an open-minded conversation about legislation uh, in a full chamber of 435 people in an office of three to five party leaders whose goal is to advance the party's agenda, or in a committee of 15 to 25 members of both parties that are proportionally representative of the body as a whole. Of those three, you're much more likely to get uh, good deliberation in that committee, right? Because the committee has uh, members of both parties, and it's small enough that they and it, you can specialize, and so the information that you need to have a have a a, a, a productive discourse can uh, come. Like members of those committees can develop expertise in a particular policy area. They can have legislative staff who are experts and specialists in that to keep them informed. Um, and it's a small enough group that you can actually have rules and procedure that make sure everybody has uh, a say. Um, 
that's not what committee meetings look like anymore. And one of the reasons why committee meetings don't look like that anymore is because committees are not where legislation is largely made. Committees are now used as political theater to provide cover for the party leadership's agenda. Um, and uh, so let's look at the other two places where deliberation is less vigorous and in fact almost non-existent. In the body as a whole, 435 members of the House of Representatives. There are procedures when a bill comes up for people to speak and for amendments to be offered and for amendments to be voted on. Um, and that is a deliberative opportunity. But it's such a large group that really what you're not having a conversation. You're broadcasting. And uh, you're not really changing people's minds. If you watch C-SPAN and watch speakers who are speaking in the Senate or in the House, they're not up there engaged in, certainly not in discourse, right? They're giving speeches for one thing, so it's not a back and forth. But they're not even really engaged in persuasion. They're not trying to change the minds of an audience that is open-minded, right? They're, they are not uh, engaged in deliberation. They're engaged in really political theater. Um, committee meetings are much more like political theater now because committees don't have a whole lot of hand in uh, shaping the final form of legislation or, or uh, um, uh, enacting legislative uh, priorities. The leadership of the majority party in each house is where those decisions happen. And it's a small group, and so it's ripe for the potential for deliberation. Right? Because the smaller the group, the more likely you can have this discursive, open-minded, back-and-forth decision-making. But the party leadership, when they huddle, they are, to the extent that they're deliberating, they're deliberating strategically. They're not deliberating in terms of policy. They're saying, okay, what's the best way to get this thing that we want across the finish line? They've already determined what it is that they want, right? And they've determined that with a variety of factors. Part of it is the input of their members uh, who can say, well, here's what I can and can't vote for. Here's where my constituents will and won't stand. So party leadership does take some input from rank and file. They also take input from important uh, uh, um, members of their coalition, the lobbyists who are uh, representing important uh, members of their party's coalition. But they then have a piece of legislation that their deliberations are aimed not at figuring out, well, what would make this the best piece of policy possible? Their deliberations are aimed at, how do we get this done? How do we win this? How do we do this with the minimum political blowback so that our, uh, we can maintain our majority? Their, their job is to maintain and expand their party's majority in that house and to enact the party's platform and get legislation across the finish line. Their job is not to listen to experts, uh, fine-tune policy, uh, have an open mind about what the different possibilities are, come to some kind of craft, some kind of thing. There's, 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 no, there's no incentive for that. So when the center of gravity is in the leadership office, there's not going to be deliberation. When the center of gravity is in the committees, instead of the leadership office, there's going to be very much more uh, deliberation. Um, and as I say today, the committees are just political theater that serve the interests of the party leaders, and so is the full chamber, uh, which is essentially just a different, larger, sort of more sterile form of political theater. So in Congress, one of the things, and it's, it, what's interesting is that the reason why our current system is the way it is, is because of reform efforts. Um, there were critiques and problems with the committee system 
that led to two waves of reform, one in the 70s and one in the 90s, that moved the power away from committees and committee chairs and into the uh, party leadership within each uh, chamber. And those reform movements were intended to uh, you know, remove a sort of territoriality and a fiefdom attitude and to, re to remove uh, the, the sort of power of one individual in a safe seat who is a committee chair who can, you know, who can basically just bottleneck legislation in a particular area. It was intended to smooth the legislative process and to avoid certain kinds of encrusted uh, power that were problematic. But the impact, this is one of those uh, sort of unintended consequences, the impact was that it moved the center of gravity of legislation into a different part of uh, the, the legislative process, and it moved it into a place where deliberation is less likely to occur than uh, it was in the old committees. Uh, so that's just one obstacle. Where does decision-making happen? Where do the important stages of decision-making happen? And is that environment one in which we're likely to get people who are having a conversation, bringing in experts, getting information, being open-minded, being willing to listen to other people's uh, perspectives, and then actually using all of that to frame their decision-making, as opposed to just frame uh, the, the, the predetermined uh, vote that they were going to have. This was you know, one of the things that was pretty terrible. I, I don't tend to watch a lot of committee meetings, but I watched some of the Comey hearings. I guess this is now like three, four years ago, so it's a very dated example. But um, one of the things that was particularly for me sad about that was that the um, members of the House Committee that were asking questions, excuse me, the Senate Committee that were asking questions, they weren't really trying to get information. They weren't really trying to figure out what happened. They weren't really trying to figure out if and uh, in what ways Comey made mistakes, the FBI made mistakes, or if they did things well. They weren't trying to figure things out. They were trying to either make him look good or make him look bad. And that is not deliberation. That is a different, that's, that, that is just pretty much flat out political uh, theater. And it, we can easily see why it is that a democracy is not going to be healthy for that. Now, um, there are other reasons why we don't have deliberation in Congress besides the kind of reform uh, movements that have shifted the center of gravity away from committees and more towards party leadership. Um, and those, are, those come from other parts of our political system. So uh, just one other example, I'm gonna take a drink of water here. Uh, one other example is that when you have people who are more partisan, excuse me, more extreme in their views, more set in their ways, more established in their ideological perspective, um, you're not gonna get a lot of deliberation. Uh, that, that, that is kind of, those people are by definition and by practice for sure, not open-minded. And their discourse is going to be almost entirely argumentative. This is my side, this is my position, and here's why I hold it. And it's going to be, to a certain extent, it's going to be political theater for the folks back home, right? Who uh, put them in office because they want that person to represent their viewpoint. Right. Here in Portland, we have one of the most progressive members of the House of Representatives, Earl Blumenauer, and um, he, he, I don't know whether he personally is an open-minded person or not, but his political behavior really can't be open-minded. To the extent that, that uh, Earl Blumenauer begins to listen to and work with Republicans and start to uh, craft legislation that uh, sort of works for, for, for both parties, the very progressive voters back home are going to say, 
what are you doing? We sent you there to represent this viewpoint. You should represent this viewpoint. And if you don't, someone will come in and primary you and we'll vote for them to go do our thing. So uh, it's even if the person who is not being open-minded is, is themselves, sort of their conscience tells them they should be open-minded, they were raised to be that way, their temperament is that way, politically, they can't act on that or they're going to get washed out of the system. So when we have more uh, members of Congress who are uh, ideologically set, and they're ideologically set because of some of the dynamics, usually of this particular thing, of the, of the nature of their district and of their, uh, the primary. Uh, if, they're, if you're in a safe Democratic seat, the, the Democratic primary is the election, and if you, you have to be super progressive to win the Democratic primary, you're not going to go to Congress ready to deliberate. You're going to go to Congress ready to stand for the principles that your voters back home want. The more of those people there are, and the fewer people who are sent there to solve problems, and to be pragmatic, and to listen and craft good legislation, um, the, the less likely there is to be deliberation. Um, who's going to go to Congress wanting to solve problems, wanting to listen to other ideas, wanting to and actually being willing and able to listen to somebody from a different party and actually say, oh, hey, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that's the best idea, but I do recognize that you think it's the best idea, and if we're going to get some kind of solution that we can all be on the same page as, and we're going to actually solve this problem rather than just grandstand, then yeah, let's build some of that stuff in. That's a very difficult predilection to have. The only reason that a politician, a member of Congress, is going to have that predilection is if that's what the voters back home want. And if you're in a swing district that has a lot of independent voters who voted for you because they think that they want you to go to Congress and solve problems, and that's mo moderate and independent voters of both the Democratic and the Republican-leaning stripe and then the ones who are basically toss-ups, that tends to be what they want. They tend to want their legislators to go solve problems, not to stand on principle. More extreme voters tend to want their legislators to go, of course they say they want them to solve problems, but what they want is they want them to win from their perspective and they really want you to go stand on your principle and have your principles win. Um, you can have both types of legislators and you're going to have. There's, there's, there's almost no way to have uh, all open-minded, moderate, pr pragmatic uh, legislators in any uh, body. But there is a critical mass of the pragmatic, problem-solving, open-minded, uh, information-seeking, uh, compromise, uh, not non-compromise, not compromise-averse type people. If there's enough of them, then you're going to get deliberation, right? You're going to get a real discussion. If there are some of those but not enough, then you're not going to get deliberation. You're going to get argumentation and political theater instead of uh, real deliberation. Why do we have an increasing number of uh, harder line members of Congress in both parties? Um, there are a couple of different answers to that, and not all of those answers, unfortunately, are amenable to political reform. One of those answers, absolutely, is gerrymandering, right? When you uh, are able to create safe seats for your party, those seats are going to mean that the election, the meaningful election back here, right, because this is actually, we have a subset here where you vote for your nominees. This is the primary. We have a two-tiered campaign system uh, or electoral system. Um, when you have a safe seat, this is the real election. And who votes in this election are party loyalists and people who have more extreme views and who, who, who have a stake in putting somebody in Congress who's, who's, who's 
uh, kind of stand on principle. Um, when you have gerrymandering, you just get more of those people of both parties, and it's actually uh, it, it, it's it's harmful to even the party leaders themselves. Uh, one of the things that uh, Republicans Republican Party leaders discovered once the Tea Party got a bunch of people in after the 2010 election was that wow, it's really hard to actually do business with a bunch of hardliners who are unwilling to compromise, even with people in their own party, much less people in in the other party. Um, so part of it's gerrymandering. Part of it is just demographic self-sorting, right? Even in states that have independent uh, districting committees, and there's a, few, uh, there's a few of them, not many, but there's a few. Um, and even in states where the, um, there's divided pa uh, party power in the state legislature so nobody has a chance to gerrymander, um, there are uh, places where it's just strongly Democratic and strongly Republican. It's the, the divide is largely an urban-rural one. Urban areas tend to be much more strongly Democratic. Rural areas tend to be much more Republican. Uh, suburbs tend to be much more mixed and have swing districts instead. But um, to the extent that people are moving to places where they feel politically more comfortable and moving out of places where they feel like, well, you know, if I'm a Republican living in Portland, I, like, my vote really doesn't matter. And I love Multnomah County, but I guess I want to vote somewhere where I actually have a voice. Demo and some people, many people won't say that. They'll just say, you know what, I just love it here too much. I'm not going to move to a swing district just because I want to have my vote count more than it does. Um, but some people will move for those reasons. And so demographic self-sorting is a contribution to uh, the more extreme members of Congress. And that's something that can't be dealt with with political reform. That is a sort of uh, social cultural factor that is beyond political reform's control. Unless you want to engage in a form of political reform that is heavily authoritarian, where you actually tell people to move in certain places and force them not to, and force people from the rural areas to move to cities, and people from the cities to move to rural areas so we have more political mixing. That's hopefully nobody finds in this class that I'm speaking to through this iPhone, finds that an enticing form of political reform because that is, you know, that's a form of authoritarianism. That's actually like, you know, the cure is worse than the disease kind of thing. Um, but uh, there, it doesn't mean that some of that can't be dealt with. One of the other reasons why there's little deliberation in Congress and uh, more um, uh, political theater and more uh, of political activity is, is, is driven by a small cadre of party leaders in each, each House and Senate is simply because of the scale of representation. Um, this is actually one of the things that has been a concern of Americans going back to the ratification debate. Right? The anti-federalists were very concerned about creating a federal government that was powerful because they knew that it was going to be distant from the people, or it was going to be more distant than the states were from the people. Um, and they didn't even really have an idea of, of what scale the distance would become, right? Um, we've narrowed the distance, the physical distance, between far-flung places in Washington, D.C. with uh, transportation and communication technology, right? Um, if I wanted to brave coronavirus, I could leave this room right now and be in Washington, D.C. by tomorrow morning. Um, and, uh, you know, even, even uh, just 200 miles away from Washington, D.C. in 1810 would have taken way longer. So we've, we've bridged the distance, but the distance is more than just a physical thing. It's a size thing, right? When the first Congress met 
each member of Congress represented about 35 to 40,000 constituents, which back then was a lot of people, but compared to the 750 to 800,000 people that every member of the House of Representatives represents now, um, and compared to the m many millions that senators in the larger states represent, um, that was actually a pretty close-knit tie. The Anti-Federalists were very concerned about creating a form of government that was powerful and distant for the exact reason that they worried that, the, that we wouldn't have a healthy democratic system, we wouldn't have a healthy legislature. Uh, they didn't articulate it in terms of the uh, concepts of deliberative democracy, but the kinds of things that they said and worried about really did prefigure these concerns. Um, and it's, it's, it's become true that members of Congress are just increasingly remote from the people back home. Um, the more expensive campaigning becomes, um, the more members of Congress have to spend time raising money. And often they can raise money in places that aren't their district. Um, I went to a fundraiser for Beto O'Rourke back, uh, I don't remember, two years ago, here in Portland, right? He was in Portland raising money because he could raise money here to run in Texas. He was learning nothing in his time in Portland and in his time in the other liberal uh, enclaves about the people of Texas. Now, I'm not saying that you have to spend 100% of your time in Texas to learn about the people of Texas, but the more time you spend away from the people you're ultimately going to represent, the less likely you are to, one, know what their concerns are, two, to have, their, be, have them be human beings to you, right, like I was talking about earlier, in terms of getting you in front of humanizing people, um, and the more likely you're going to be to stand on principle and, and, and on the particular policies that you campaigned on, and less likely to be deliberative and open-minded. So um, the scale of representation, the greater the amount of money you need to raise, and the difficulty of raising that money. Now, what political reforms could address that? You know, well, uh, one, we could increase the size of the House of Representatives uh, by tenfold. Instead of 435 members, we could have 4,000 plus members. Um, and uh, that would create a representative scheme where each member of Congress represented about 50 or 60,000 people. In fact, one of the original amendments as, that was written and passed as part of the Bill of Rights, it was in fact the First Amendment, was a limitation on the number of constituents that a member of Congress, a member of the House of Representatives, because the Senate was always going to have two senators per state, that a member of the House of Representatives could represent. It was going to be capped at 50,000. Um, that amendment, which was the first amendment in the list of 12 that was sent to the states, all 12 were passed by two-thirds of the House of uh, Representatives and two-thirds of the Senate and sent to the states. Only three-quarters of the states, excuse me, three-quarters of the states only ratified 10 of those 12, starting with amendment number three, which has subsequently become our first amendment. So the very first, the original, the OG First Amendment that we never got because three-quarters of the states didn't ratify it was a limitation on the scale of representation in the House of Representatives. We would have roughly 4,500 or close to 5,000 members of the House of Representatives right now if that amendment had been passed because it capped the size of constituency at 50,000. Um, now, it's possible that at some point in the 20th century, that amendment would have been itself uh, amended to increase that to maybe 100,000. Um, but uh, unless that amendment had been just repealed, what we would have today is we would have a uh, closer nexus between our members of the House of Representatives and the constituents back home. There would still be that physical distance. Um, that, that reform, if it had been enacted back 
1789, when it was first passed by Congress, would have potentially created other problems. I mean, imagine a House of Representatives that's 4,500 people. Uh, how deliberative is that going to be? It's going to be much more like a circus. But that's partly just because we're imagining the change from 435 to 4,500 and being like, well, it's already a circus. How is it not going to be even more of a crazy-ass circus uh, than it ever was before? Uh, but if we'd had a system that slowly evolved uh, so that the size of Congress grew with the population, and Congress itself, as a self-regulating, the House of Representatives in this case, because so the Senate would still just have 100 people, the House of Representatives grew slowly and as a self-regulating body would have adopted procedures, probably much more committee-oriented procedures, for handling the size, the sheer size of, uh, the, uh, of the legislature. And those 4,500 people would represent a smaller group of folks. And while some of them would represent a politically homogenous group who were very extremist, and so some of those 4,500 people would come from super safe districts, with that many congressional districts, unless there was brutal across-the-board gerrymandering, far more of those 4,500 people would come from swing districts. Uh, right now, only about really realistically 20 to 25 percent of the House districts are competitive. And that's possibly even a, a high estimate. Uh, but if, imagine if House districts went from being 25%, which is a high estimate, competitive, to 50 or 60% competitive. That would mean that we would have more likely to hit that critical mass for having enough people who were in Congress who wanted to uh, actually get involved in a discourse to solve problems and they were open-minded about it and they came from a swing district where the, their constituents expected it and their constituents could keep an eye on that person more closely because there were fewer of them. Um, that, uh, and if you had to run in a 50,000 person district, you would have less money to have to raise, which would mean you would spend less time raising money. You could spend more time having town hall meetings and listening to your constituents and actually studying the, uh, the policies. So um, there are some factors that are beyond our control that actually uh, make Congress a not very deliberative body, um, and then there are other reforms that are available. Now, I've been speaking about Congress, and we also have another layer of uh, representatives, uh, legislators, and those are state legislators. And um, today there are about 5,000 members of state legislatures collectively. Uh, and in fact, if that original First Amendment had been passed, we would have about 4,500 or 5,000 members of the House of Representatives. So what we have today, at our size of population and at, at, the, at the size of what state legislatures are, we have roughly that level of representation. A, a, a house district in uh, the state of Oregon, rep, that person represents about 50,000 people. A senate district represents about 100,000 people. So we do have that at the state level. State legislatures actually do tend to be more deliberative. Uh, they tend to get more done. They tend to uh, have outcomes that you know, there are some states that are that are that make most of the news, like Wisconsin or Texas uh, or uh, Oregon, where one party clearly controls a, a, a strong majority and they can more or less do what they want. But most states have state legislatures that are more mixed and that are more deliberative. Um, when we get down to the level of county and city government, these officials are much more likely to be deliberative. So one of the things about deliberation, it doesn't scale very well. Um, and it also doesn't scale when we have 
uh, a system like ours where as it scales up, it becomes, it, it incentivizes much more extremism on the part of the people who win and much more disconnection. Um, so we do have a variable level of deliberativeness in the legislative bodies uh, throughout uh, our city. One of the criticisms of the Portland city government, and we'll get to that later in this term, is that we have five member city council and those city council members are elected at large, so each of them represents the 650,000 people in the, in the city of Oregon rather than, a, rather than a distinct district. And that's, while it's a small group and deliberation among five people is easier than deliberation among 5,000 people, um, it's a small, just so, size of the group alone is not the only or even the major factor that's determining what will uh, make people be deliberative. Um, it's not a very deliberative body, and it's hard. And again, like if you're going to run a campaign to win votes at, from 650,000 people or from among 650,000 constituents, um, you're going to have to spend more time fundraising, and you're going to have to spend more time figuring out what your social media strategy is, <clears throat> and more time figuring out how you can uh, get your message out to large groups of people. That leaves you less time to connect on a one-on-one -on -one basis. It leaves you less time to, uh, to um, listen to experts. It leaves you less time to meet with your colleagues, your other four members of the, of the city council. Not to say that those things don't happen. Members of the Portland City Council, they meet their constituents, they work with each other, but they don't do it to the extent and at the level because of the way the system is structured that they would if there were, say, a 15-person city council and you were elected in a district where you actually had 50,000 constituents instead of 650,000 constituents, um, <clears throat> and where you could then spend less time fundraising and more time becoming an expert, and there was more perspectives, so it's much easier to be open-minded when there are 14 other people with perspectives than when there are four, honestly. Um, there are a number of psychological dynamics that are involved in a small group like the five-member uh, Portland City Council. So. Uh, Scale is definitely one of those things. Electoral structures uh, have a, definitely have an impact on uh, deliberativeness. It's also true, and I just, I'm just going to note it because I really don't think it's necessary for me to, to multiply the examples so much because we're going to start getting into more specifics and we will talk about participation and deliberation as uh, critical standards as we move into the specific uh, areas of uh, reform that we're going to look at starting next week. But why are there low levels of participation? Um, in various crucial uh, places. One of them is our political culture, right? People, we have a ballot-centric political culture, and so most Americans don't even think, don't even know about, much less think about or, or, or uh, reject the many other avenues of participation that are available to them. They're, they're not aware that if you go to a city council meeting, you actually have a really big voice. Like, if you make a lot of noise at a city council meeting, that's way more than if you vote for somebody uh, one side or the other. Um, and uh, you may not win, but you're going to get your voice heard. We have a very ballot-centric political culture, and so that people sort of self-alienate from these other forms of participation. Um, it's also the case that because of various rules and procedures in our electoral system, the other avenues besides voting, and even voting itself, can seem like they have a very low level of efficacy. Uh, you don't get a lot in exchange for the energy and effort that you put into it. Uh, so uh, when we do actually have, for example, uh, if you have uh, members of Congress, if you're a member of the House of Representatives, you need to, on average, raise a million dollars to run your re-election campaign. That is uh, uh, over a two-year cycle. You have 100 weeks. That's $10,000 a week. You don't have time 
to listen to a lot of different constituents. You're going to spend most of your time listening to the people who are going to help you raise that money. And then you're going to spend some of that time asleep, some of that time with your family, some of that time studying policy and in committee meetings, and some of that time in, in strategy meetings with party, party leaders. Um, the more money you have to raise, the less time you actually have to listen to multiple groups, and the less incentive you have to listen to those who don't have some way of financially contributing to your campaign. So it's not as though money just buys outcomes. Money buys access. And when members of Congress have a limited amount of time to give over to public access, they're going to very naturally choose giving that time to the, to the people for whom it gives them the biggest return. Uh, and now, if you represent a big group of constituents, if you represent a block of 40,000 voters in somebody's district, or if you represent an industry that maybe doesn't have a lot of money to lobby, but that is very important to jobs in your district, you're gonna, that, that member of, of Congress is gonna listen to you as well. So it's, money is not the only factor in uh, getting uh, your voice heard with a member of Congress. There's also the constituent and the district connection, which, which does so. But people can be very realistic, like, you know, if, if I wanted to go express my concerns, about climate change or uh, Medicare for all or any kind of concern I might have, uh, what's going to happen to the education system in Portland after the coronavirus uh, um, recedes and we have to go back to school. Uh, if, if I wanted to talk to Earl Blumenauer, no, there, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to talk to Earl Blumenauer. Um, my state senator, Lou Frederick, uh, who lives only about 30 blocks from here, uh, and he represents 100,000 people or so, um, but he, he lives really close by. I interviewed him on my podcast in my garage studio because I sent an email just to his generic, you know, Lou Fredericks at Oregon Gov, whatever the email was, and got a response from his chief of staff, and we arranged to have an interview. Now, granted, I'm not just a just an, an average nobody citizen. I am a political science professor with a podcast, but I, that's hardly anything, really. It didn't take much on my part to get to sit down with my state senator, one of 30 people who is part of uh, the state senate that makes the laws for the state of Oregon, I had access to him. And uh, he listened to me, I listened to him. Uh, I think that he uh, you know, really took him, he, he was able to be open with me because even though he's a busy guy, right, just because he only represents 100,000 people doesn't mean he's not really busy, but he took time. In fact, I kind of had to rush him out of the house. Like he, he's, he was, I was a little bit like, I have things to do. Uh, but I could have had really almost not unlimited amount of time with him, but I had access to an awful lot of time. And that is going to create, I mean, we had a deliberative interaction uh, where I really think that he, we had a conversation and I think that he's, he does want to listen to his constituents. Um, and we agreed on certain things and disagreed on others. And uh, the more as a legislator you see, you come into contact with people who, uh, you know, you disagree with, but then you're like, okay, well, I should take your ideas into account, the more likely you are to act on that. The more that people see that that kind of small-scale interaction can actually have an outsized impact, the more likely people are to extend their participation outside of uh, the, the vote and the voting only, or outside of the two, more com the two most common things, which is voting and then donating money. Um, so part of it is our perception of the, the ballot-centric form of democracy, and part of it is that, again, at certain scales, we just really can't have access. Like, I'm not going to get to go to sit and talk to Earl Blumenauer, right? If I try to get him on my podcast, it's going to be impossible. I've tried to get members of the Portland City Council, just the City Council, it's not Congress, 
on my podcast, but they represent 650,000 people. And it's really, it's, it's basically been impossible. And I have connections, right? And uh, I have a voice. So imagine just being a regular old person. You know, you're not going to get the kind of time that you're going to get at a lower scale. So scale really does matter for both participation and deliberation, though it's definitely not the only factor. There are, there are other factors. Um, so uh, there are other obstacles, and I could explore them sort of endlessly, but the point of this class is not to do an exhaustive catalog of the ways in which our political system throws up obstacles to participation and deliberation. Uh, it's just to indicate the, the main dynamics, and I think that that point has been made. So I'm going to wrap things up, and I'm going to say goodbye from day 27, and I'll see you on a future day, and I hope that everybody is uh, staying safe, healthy, not crazy, and uh, that you're actually, that, that, that you're doing more than just hanging in there, that you're actually learning, and that you're having time to reflect on what all of this means. I really hope that's the case, and I'm going to continue talking about it, but I'm going to stop talking about it now. Bye.